G'day everyone, good to see you here at the EU Public Meeting. If I haven't met you, I'm, my name's Rowan Kemp. I lead the staff team that work alongside the EU here at Sydney Uni. How about if you caught public transport to uni today, train or bus? Okay, how about if you had to wait this morning? Okay, hand up if while you were waiting, because we spend so much of our time waiting, hand up if when you were waiting, you spent time just thinking about the transport you were about to catch. You know, you were thinking they're going, the bus, how I love the bus. And thinking about, I wonder which bus it'll be today, and where I'll be on the bus, and, or the train, and you're thinking, aren't trains amazing? And, how I, do the do the rims of the wheels go on the outside or the inside of the rails and would it make a difference and well the way we wait for things because we do spend so much of our time waiting the way we wait for things is usually completely disconnected to that for which we wait you're waiting for the bus you're not thinking about the bus you're not thinking about the train you're playing with your eye products right you're talking on your iPad and you're punching up your iPhone and you're, you know, that's... It, the way you wait is disconnected to that for which you wait, right? I did think of two counter-examples, two moments in life where actually the way we wait is strongly affected by that for which we wait. Uh, one example is when waiting for an exam. So if you walk around Sydney Uni during exam week and if you're... Our first year, you may have not got to the sort of the November exam weeks, you'll experience this. But when you walk around the uni during exam week in the morning, you will see a lot of people waiting. And what they're doing whilst they are waiting is usually strongly affected by that for which they're waiting. You know, they're trying to cram six months' worth of lectures into these 20 minutes that I have to prepare for this paper, right? Um, though I did once uh, do an exam myself down in PNR. People know where PNR is down in engineering. Great part of the world down there in engineering. And I, I was sitting outside there. It was an exam morning. I was there, I don't know, about 8.30, 8.40, something like that, waiting for a 9 o'clock exam. I'm there cramming in the subject, whatever I was doing. And a whole bunch of engineers were there waiting for another exam down there. And they brought along the thing that was going to help them celebrate the end of the exam. They brought along, they brought a full... No, not a keg, that would have been interesting, no, but they'd actually brought um, several boxes full of beer. <laughs> and they just had these cases of beer just there whilst they were studying. In fact, one of the guys, his actions, the way he was waiting showed what he was really waiting for. Uh, because he just couldn't wait any longer. And he just cracked one open at quarter to nine in the morning and decided that aeronautical engineering would be so much clearer, <laughs> lubricated by the amber fluid, that would really help him see what's really at stake in this exam. So maybe there's one example, at least, where the way you wait is affected by that for which you wait. When you've got a moment of assessment, when you've got a moment sort of accounting to meet up to. Another example would be, I think, the day of your wedding. That is the way, well particularly if you're uh, a woman, the way you wait on that day for your wedding is strongly affected by that for which you're waiting, right? That is, you spend, it doesn't matter if, you're, if your wedding is like at five in the afternoon, you're up at like four in the morning, apparently, because they have to get you ready. And they start work on your hair and they work all the way down your body to your toes, or maybe it's the other way around, I don't really know. Um, but it's all 
whole day you're waiting for this event and the way you wait is affected by that for which you're waiting. Of course, if you're a guy, uh, you commence that sort of waiting period about 45 minutes before the service when you decide maybe I'll have a shower. <laughs> and that's the limit of your preparation. <laughs> so maybe there's two counterexamples where the way you wait is strongly affected by that for which you're waiting. Now, as Christians, if you call yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are people who wait. That's what the Bible says. We are waiters. So the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Christians in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he describes Christians as those... He gives thanks for them and says, You've turned to the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, Jesus. That is the way you can characterise the whole of the Christian life is a life spent that's, that you've turned to the living and true God and now you wait. You are waiting for Jesus to come. We're people who wait. So my question today for you is this, though. Is the way that you wait as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, is that strongly affected by that for which you wait? Or rather, I should say, for him, by him for whom you wait? Or are we living our Christian lives really disconnected from him to whom we wait? I mean, when you get up this morning, were you thinking, yes, you know, I am waiting for Jesus to come and that strongly affects how I live today? Because the Bible says that that's how you live as a disciple of Jesus, with that sort of framework. Whereas the reality, seems to me, is we often live day after day after day. We can go whole days, maybe weeks, without consciously thinking, yes, this is who I am as a follower of Jesus. I am waiting for him to be revealed. Waiting for him to come. And what's more, that actually strongly affects how I live in the present. Because that's the teaching of the New Testament. Is that being a disciple of Jesus has that character to it. So what we're doing today is we're going to look at a particular part of God's word in the book of Isaiah. It's our second last time um, looking at the book of Isaiah and we're towards the back end of the book we're looking at chapters 56 through to 61 is sort of the zone I'm in and these are chapters addressed to God's waiting people God's waiting people and there's going to be a direct sort of application relevance for us today because even though they stand you know, two and a half thousand years ago God's people at that point in time they were waiting we stand on the other side of the coming, the, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet we too, as God's people, are still waiting. We are waiting for him to come back. And there are actually great parallels between their waiting and our waiting. And that's what we're going to try and explore today. Try and work out how do we wait? How ought we be waiting? Okay, so if you've got your Bible there, Isaiah chapter 56, I've got one verse for you today. Isaiah 56 verse 1 is really our key verse. Isaiah 56 verse 1, it says this. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. God's people here, through the, in this, receiving this prophecy from the uh, prophet Isaiah, from the Lord, they're waiting. What are they waiting for? Well, you can see the second half of that verse. 
maintain justice, do what is right, for my salvation, says the Lord, is close at hand. My righteousness will soon be revealed. What they're waiting for is salvation. What they're waiting for is the Lord's righteousness to be revealed. What's his righteousness to be revealed? Well, it's often the way um, poetry works in the Old Testament is that the same thing is said twice, just in parallel, one after the other. So two ways of saying the same thing. They're waiting for the Lord's salvation. And then the parallel statement, they're waiting for the Lord's righteousness soon to be revealed. Not two different things, same thing, said two different ways. That is, what's going to be revealed when the Lord intervenes in history and saves his people, what is going to be revealed is the Lord's own righteousness, his faithfulness to his covenant, to his promises. When he intervenes and saves, you say, there you go, the Lord was faithful. The Lord kept his promises. He has revealed his righteousness because he's kept his word. That's what they're waiting for, for the Lord to intervene. Now, there's a couple of different pictures in these chapters given of what this moment of salvation will look like for them, or look like, or what it will be like. So flip forward to Isaiah uh, chapter 59. Isaiah 59, verse 15 to 20. Isaiah 59, halfway through verse 15, actually. Here's one sort of description of what will this moment be like when the Lord intervenes. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay. Wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes, he will repay the islands their due. From the west people will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory, for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins declares the Lord. The, the picture here is of what, well, in a way, it's a moment of assessment. It's a moment of accountability. It's a moment where actually people are repaid according to what they have done. Wrath to God's enemies, but redemption for those who repent of their sins. If you like, this is the exam. What they're waiting for, what God's people wait for, is the moment of judgment when actually God will come and see justice done because no one else was seeing it done. To wickedness, God's wrath. To those who repent, his mercy. That's what they're waiting for. So the question, remember, the question is, if that's what they're waiting for, how should they live? That's the question we've just got to keep asking. If that's what they're waiting for, how should they live? We're going to come back to that question in a sec. But there's the first picture. It's like a moment of assessment. Now flick forward to chapter 61. Here's another picture of what it'll be like. This moment of salvation. Verse 10 of Isaiah 61. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. What does the day of salvation look like? Well, it's, it's a moment where his people are clothed.
clothed by him. The Lord will put, what will he clothe them with? He'll clothe them with salvation. He'll array them in a robe of his righteousness, his faithfulness to his promises, such that it will be like a wedding. So glorious will it be to be clothed by God in that way. It'll be like you've been completely doled up for a wedding. So in a way, what are the Lord's people waiting for? They're waiting for, yes, the day of the Lord's salvation, which will be like a day of assessment, but also it'll be like a day of a wedding celebration. That's what it'll be like. So then we come back to the question, if that's what they're waiting for, how should they live? I said we'd come back to that question, didn't I? So we will, we'll come back to that question. What about us, though? Just to jump forward from them to us. What are we waiting for? Well, isn't it interesting that those two pictures of what God's people are waiting for, you know the New Testament picks up both those pictures and applies it to us as the followers of Jesus? We are waiting for both a day of assessment and we're waiting for a day that will be like a wedding. So in the New Testament, say in Acts chapter 17, what do we learn? Uh, the Apostle Paul speaking in Athens, he says that the Lord has set a day when he is going to judge the whole world with justice by a man he has appointed. And he's given a sign of that to everyone by raising that man from the dead. Who's that man? Jesus. Or, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what are we told? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a great day of assessment. When the Lord Jesus comes, it will be a moment of judgment for all. So that's what we're waiting for. And yet at the same time in the New Testament, it talks about that great day when Jesus is revealed and he comes and he saves his people, all who've put their trust in him. What will that be like? Revelation chapter 21, it will be like a wedding day. When Jesus, the bridegroom, is joined to his bride, his bride being all of his people. Now, it's not literally going to be a wedding, but it will be so... Can you think of an event more joyous than a wedding? More, there is no happier occasion than a great wedding. That is what it's going to be like. That's what God's people are waiting for. The moment when finally everything as you were hoping it would be. That's what God's people are waiting for. A day of judgment, but also a day of great celebration, like a wedding. So now let's address the question. If that's what we're waiting for, how do we live? Well, go back to what I said I had a key verse for you today. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 1. It tells us how to live. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Actually, literally it reads like this. It says, maintain justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. That is, God's people are told, while you're waiting, maintain justice and do righteousness because soon God is going to be righteous towards you. God is going to keep his promise towards you, keep his covenant, be faithful to his covenant towards you. So how are you to live? Maintain justice and do righteousness. And how's that played out in that chapter? Look down to verse 4 or verse 6. You can see there it's described as to hold fast to the covenant. You ought to do what God is going to do. God's going to keep his covenant with you, show his righteousness, so you are to hold fast to the covenant. That's how you're to wait for him by obedience to this covenant he's established with you. That's how God's people wait. Well, what about us? How are we to wait? Is it the same for us? It introduces a little bit of um, tension, actually, doesn't it? 
Because um, who gets saved in the New Testament? Who's saved at that final day when Jesus appears? Well, it's those who have faith in him. In fact, we know, don't we, that where you're saved by grace through faith and not by your works, right? But here we're told you're to live like this as God's people, if you're to be God's people. So is there a tension somehow here that, you know, by works or is it by faith? And I want to say there's no, there's no tension here, right? There's no tension. It is true, according to the scriptures, that you are saved by faith alone. But it is also true that the faith that saves is never alone. In fact, the apostle, uh, James says in James chapter 2, he just says, I will show you my faith by what I do. James chapter 2, verse 18. You can't just have faith without it issuing in a life that's lived in obedience to Jesus. Notice I'm saying a life lived in obedience. I'm not saying a perfect life. It's not true that you're going to be able to live without sin in your life. That's not possible, this side of glory. But it is true that if you are genuinely a person of faith in Jesus, then the Lord can look at your life and see the way you live and he can... He, he will be able to tell from the very way you live whether you're a person who has faith in Jesus or not. Not because you've lived perfectly, but it's about which track are you on. Are you on the, the road that leads to destruction or are you on the narrow road that leads to life? You might wander off occasionally, but do you repent and get back on the road? Like that's, that's a life lived in discipleship of Jesus. That sort of life. Well, I'll give you some other references you can check out later. In uh, Romans, that great book of, you know, saved by grace through faith, actually in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 16, a book ends the book of Romans, there's this phrase that talks about the obedience of faith. That's what faith issues in, obedience. Or Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, we're told as God's people in Christ to pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You just can't say, well, it's about me just trusting Jesus. My, the way I live my life is irrelevant. That, that just does not work in a New Testament understanding of faith. The faith that saves is the faith that issues in a life lived in following Jesus. So let's then try to dig down a bit more deeply. If there's no tension here, what actually does it look like to maintain justice and to do righteousness? Now, this is where it gets really uncomfortable for us. I'm going to suggest to you that this next little section, I hope it actually makes you as uncomfortable as it has made me. Because we need to take our discipleship as the people of God very seriously. Have a look at chapter 58 of Isaiah. Isaiah 58. Let's press down a little bit more on what it looks like to maintain justice and to do righteousness. Let me read uh, chapter 58. I'm going to read uh, from verse 1. Shout out aloud, says the Lord. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. So God's people not doing well here. They're doing things, you know, they're sinning against the Lord. And then he explains what's going on. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions, seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves? You have not noticed. And then the Lord explains 
Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And then, you know, sometimes you might hear uh, Christians say, oh, we should get back into fasting. It's a shame we're not fasting. Then the Lord here, and this, this passage actually says the sort of fasting he's interested in here. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call for help and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. How does the Lord want his people to live here? What does it mean to maintain justice and to do righteousness? He says, I'm not interested in your outward religious practices. What I'm interested in, he says, is your relationships as the people of God. The way you're actually treating each other as my people. In particular, he says, you are oppressing each other. And he says, when there's someone in need, you're not meeting that need. What I really want you to do is fix that. Maintain justice and do righteousness. Care for one another. Love one another. Meet each other's needs as the people of God. That's what he wants to see them do. What about us today? Well, let me uh, encourage you to turn to what is a very strange verse. Galatians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. I find this verse very, very strange. This is not what I would expect if I was writing the Bible. Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is one of those moments where um, some Christians are making some pretty big decisions. Galatians chapter 2, Paul's relaying the event, the account of the event. He says, James, Kephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, that is, you know, the big three, the big three leaders of the uh, early Christian church in Jerusalem, James, Kephas or Peter and John, those esteemed as pillars, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. That's a big moment right there, right? That's them dividing up the whole world in terms of the mission of Jesus. Okay, okay well, I'll take six continents and you take two. Or however many continents there are, I don't know. But, um, that is... They're saying, we'll go to the Jews throughout the world, you go to the Gentiles. Big moment. We are divide up the whole world for the mission of Jesus. Great. Keep going. All they asked was that we should continue to remember... And then what would you say there, right? I'm thinking, they just... 
us that we should continue to remember to not pull back from preaching the gospel of Jesus in season or out of season. Or just remember that you'll be answerable to the Lord Jesus Christ, so do not fear persecution and just go, what they say is, all they asked, the one thing that they asked, the only thing they asked was that you should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do all along. So it wasn't even news to Paul. He and they were both on the same page. That is the one thing they needed to remember whilst preaching the gospel of Jesus was remember the poor. Does that just strike you as a bit unexpected? Is that how you think about being a Christian and the mission of Jesus? And But you see there's a connection there, isn't there? What, what did God want of his people Maintain justice, do righteousness. And what did that look like? You're not caring for the poor and the needy amongst you. And, and what do the apostles say to each other? Just remember, as we do it, as we preach the gospel of Jesus, remember the poor. And I think they don't just mean the poor out there in the world. They mean the poor within the community. I'll uh, flick to another passage here on the same sort of theme. James chapter 2, which I mentioned before. James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith and have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. He's saying, you see a brother or sister in physical need and you do nothing about it, your faith is worth zippo. It's dead. It's not enough to just go, man, that's bad. I'll pray for you. If you have material possessions, it's just, that's just what he says. He says, your faith is dead if that's as far as it takes you. I could go on in the New Testament. I could give you 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. says the same sort of thing. In fact, it's not just the local Christian church. It's actually international. In Romans 15, verse 26, Paul says to the Roman Christians, he says, Macedonia and Achaia, to other places, have been pleased to share their resources with the poor amongst the saints, that is the Christians, in Jerusalem. A global effort amongst Christians to make sure that their brothers and sisters in Christ are not living in need. It's part of what it means to be part of the people of God. Now this is where it's troubling. According to the, st the statistics that I found on the web this week, 13% of all Christians around the world live in what's known technically as absolute poverty. Now, absolute poverty is defined by the World Bank, which is not a Christian organisation, defined by the World Bank as, quote, a condition of life so characterised by malnutrition, illiteracy and disease as to be beneath any reasonable definition of human dignity. 13% of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are living in that condition, which equates to less than 90 US dollars a year to live on. And that's about a quarter of all the people in the world who live in absolute poverty. And what do we say? That's bad. We'll pray for you. 
The reality is we have resources. We are those who have material possessions. And the reality is there are 260 million Christian brothers and sisters living in absolute poverty. You know what the problem is, right? Ultimately, the problem is sin. We hear it. We just don't want to do anything about it. You know what the good news is in Isaiah? The end of Isaiah uh, 59, Isaiah 59, verse 21. There's a great promise of God that he is going to put his spirit onto his people to enable them to live for him. So I want to say to you this as I close. You and I, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to live boldly for the Lord Jesus Christ, to give generously, to choose to set our personal living standards at such a level that we will free up resources to care for the poor, especially those of the household of faith around the world. You have an opportunity to set your living standards this week, this year, next year, such that you can free up resources. Don't just tell me you've got to wait till you get some fancy-pantsy job with a big income and then you'll be generous. Because I tell you what, if you can't do it now with the wealth that you have at your disposal now, you won't later on. You'll say things like, look, how can I possibly expect my children to share a bedroom? I mean, they have to have a bedroom each. So we need to go to a bigger house. When there's 260 million Christian brothers and sisters who, who have barely a room to sleep in together. Do you see what I'm saying? You have an opportunity. I have an opportunity. Because this is not too hard for us to live boldly for Jesus. He's given us his spirit. How are you going to live? Maintain justice. Do righteousness while we wait to be clothed with God's salvation and his faithful righteousness.